So before we go into this episode, and you're going to hear an introduction in, in a little bit, um, I want to talk about the fact that um, this is definitely, it's a longer episode. And so I, I want to urge people that are tuning into the show, and maybe this is the first time you've tuned in, that um, we're going to be talking about several subjects, and they hop a little bit um, over the map. And we outline specifically uh, three areas before we really get into the genetics of the research. And if you want to skip ahead and just listen to that, that's completely a prerogative. But I think there's a lot of setup here. And the first um, the first part of the program is dedicated to research and um, how we know what we know about uh, the genetics of superpowers. The second part is about the politics behind that research and um, some of the, the gates that have been put in place and the motivations for the funding of specific research. And then the third part addresses directly head on um, what types of um, systems can be used and powers can be um, extrapolated from other living examples um, and a little bit of advice given as to how you might implement that. So without further ado, we head into this next episode, the part two of Dr. DNA and the Genetics of Superheroes. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Um, as you know, um, pod, pod Sequentialism is an outgrowth of the Pop Sequentialism traveling art exhibition of comic book art of the modern era. And we have recently relaunched the Pod, the Pop Sequentialism website. Um, we got it back from a, a web host who was terrible and was sort of... Um, not allowing us access for the last couple of years, which is um, why, while it is back up, it still does have a slightly dated look, and we're going to be updating that. But um, it's going to grow to incorporate not just great modern comic book art, but also original animation cells, um, pulp and paperback cover artwork, um, commission drawings, and ephemeral art from people that um, those of us who love comic books would appreciate and enjoy. We'll also be integrating a lot more of this podcast in uh, transcripted uh, articles on the Pop Sequentialism website. So they're going to kind of merge a little bit, and it's going to be very exciting, and I'm really happy to invite you all to it. But um, without further ado, and with a little tip of my hat to La Luz de Jesus Gallery and Soap Plant Wacko Superstore, as well as uh, my wife and I's new endeavor, Gallery 30 South in Pasadena... I want to welcome back to the program one of our most popular guests, I think our most popular guest that we've ever had, um, definitely reading the numbers and the amount of downloads that we've had on um, his prior episode. We've really hit, um, you know, not just successful numbers, but really higher than almost every other show by a, a pretty good margin. Uh, welcoming back Dr. DNA. And um, as we've um, said before, you know, we, we need to keep his actual name and identity a bit of a secret. And you're gonna, there's going to be quite a few programs like this coming forward where we've been contacted by whistleblowers who want to talk about things, but for professional reasons can't really attach their name to it. Um, one great thing that makes this a little bit easier with Dr. DNA is that um, there's no need to, to do any kind of voice disguising. But um, that his knowledge base is incredible. Um, I can tell you for a fact that uh, his credentials are impeccable. Um, I'm not going to share them with you, but um, I do guarantee it. And when we last had him on the show, we were talking about the genetics of superpowers, and we started to talk a little bit about it. Um, and it went pretty in-depth for the layman, but as uh, Dr. DNA explained to me right before we started, we probably only got about 3% into it. And so, um, welcome back, Doctor. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for yeah. having me here. Absolutely. Hello, listeners. And um, we were, before we started taping, we started talking about uh, things like CRISPR, and we had addressed this before, you know, that um, there are certain practices within um, genetics and in the medical um, industries, and I will say industries, not business, that um, reach the zeitgeist. They reach the public a little bit, and they become popular. And you had said that the good thing about CRISPR is that people like it, you know, that it reached a certain degree of attention. When I say like it, they, they like reading about it, maybe not necessarily understanding exactly what it is. But because of that, that affords certain higher budgets at different corporations because it's there's a, a swell of support for it, at least in yeah. perception. Yeah. There certainly are trends and fashions in science. You know, there'll be a decade of this or a decade of that. And, you know, there have been uh, genetic manipulation tools for a long time. 
And uh, the funny, you know, Matt, you mentioned CRISPR. What do you think about that? And it's one of the first tools that really has widespread attention, you know, past the sciences and past the very narrow area of the sciences. But I have read um, the literature that goes way, way back, and I have used some of these tools. And, and there are tools that have been used and were just as effective and have been forgotten. So there's definitely fashion, but there has never been um, as much buzz about a genetic manipulation tool as CRISPR. And we're really reaching sort of a critical mass, it seems, in the media. Is CRISPR a um, proprietary technology? Is it owned? Well, or is it just a blanket um, description of a process? Well, it's funny. You know, there's... Um, <clears throat> so you have researchers that are working on it. And in this particular case, case um, it's in contention. So what happened, there were some researchers in Boston and researchers in the Berkeley um, UCB or Cal. And um, they each invented stuff and tried to patent stuff. And <clears throat> this whole thing about patenting stuff by scientists really started to become popular in the 90s after um, Genentech patented growth hormone and mm -hmm. made bazillions of dollars. And then the sciences realized, oh, hey, we can make money on this. But before then, academia was really academic. But in the 90s really came the swell of scientists getting interested in starting companies and patenting everything. In fact, I was involved in making a patent and involved in writing and talking with lawyers and going back and forth, and we actually submitted and so on. Um, and in the 90s, there was a big... Um, <clears throat> It was a turning point because if you actually went the patent route, you know, the pure academics uh, ridiculed you. You're like, oh, you're not really pure. You're greedy. It's like grunge musicians. Capitalist. Yeah. But now everyone's kind of accepted. You know, yeah. it's like kind of everyone's accepted, hey, we should all just code and make billions of dollars. Yeah. Right. Well, now it's, you know, it's acceptable that Iggy Pop is going to sell his songs to Cadillac commercials. Right. You know, that whereas before it was a pejorative thing, you know, it was a terrible idea that you were somehow lessening your art by loaning it out. Right. And he's made the argument. It's like, hey, look, I'm not rich. Um, I'm almost 70 years old and I'm not getting any younger. And if I want to be able to afford to live comfortably in an industry that no longer supports new music, I have to do these things. Right. And, you know, F you because it's my friggin' song. So I, I get it. I get where that comes from. And I also understand that, especially in the sciences, that there's probably a lot of financial debt that people have to pay back. And if you are going to limit their revenue streams, um, then they're kind of, they have to take jobs in academia mm -hmm. if, if they're not allowed the second source of income. Right, right. So the culture has changed. Mm -hmm. um, we'll get back to CRISPR in detail and, of course, how we can make all of you listeners into your own superhumans. That would be interesting, huh? Yeah. And uh, I think that'd be fun. I'd like to see a world like that. But, um, yeah, so that's what happened from the 90s, and now it's popular. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned CRISPR, before, though, Now, too. the thing about CRISPR mm -hmm. is that it is so popular, and it's a really good tool. It's a very easy tool, mm -hmm. and you can actually buy um, CRISPR kits from small startups for like 150 bucks. Wow. I actually bought one. I just wanted to say, hey, I wonder what this looks like. If you have to put it in the fridge, what components do they have? And it yeah. wasn't bad, 150 bucks. Like a road test. Yeah. So you can buy a CRISPR kit and stick it in your refrigerator and do your own genetic manipulations if you want. So really, listeners, if you wanted to, you could. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to touch upon, you know, there have been many a perfect flower that has bloomed sight unseen in the area of biology. Light and microscope there, not included, I assume. Um, in, right. Uh, or electron microscope not included with the, uh, with the CRISPR kit. Right. You know, um... And ancient peoples were not dumb. Supposedly, the Greeks were working on a steam engine. They had a little track and things like that, you know, mm -hmm. but technology has come and gone. And I have a friend who's like, oh, things are only getting better, he thinks. Oh, everything's getting better. But I've actually successfully argued, not always. Yeah. You know, there have been dark ages. Um, yeah. Logic and thought and consideration and have gone away and there have been you know brutal ruling just yeah, through physical the, the, force the appearance of the caliphate in the in the muslim world in the 16th century which put a stop to um the incredible scientific advances that had been made in that part of the world right. when they decided that science was anti-god right yeah, absolutely so uh anyway crispr yeah hey listeners you can go buy one out there just do a search you know how to do it 
Um, it's only modifying bacteria. But the thing about CRISPR is so many, there's so much potential money to be made mm-hmm. that, of course, you know, you get what you bill for, as they say in the medical <laughs> yeah. community. And um, just people are modifying it and improving it and actually just improving it. Seriously, you're taking something that bacteria had and you're making it better. And um, they're improving the fidelity, you know, like a million fold or 10 to the ninth fold. And uh, where you can get to the point where you could target potentially a single cell and just do a single change. Mm-hmm. Now, reversing autism, I would think, would be not only something that would be a, a large area of research because of the inflated numbers of children affected with it, but also very monetizable. And so I'd imagine that would be something that someone has to be working on, if not 20 labs at the same time. Yeah. Oh, but I wanted to say about the um, the financial interest and CRISPR in particular is, you know, there were two groups that were involved in patenting it. And they filed just pretty much around the same time. And there was a recent court ruling on it. And I think um, Boston or Harvard, I think it was, won. So, you know, Cal Berkeley is like, oh, my God, we don't get the money. Yeah. But there are also other patent things in the behind. They get some money from other stuff, these, these things, you know, fine print. Um. Yeah. So what about access? So we had talked about in the last program a little bit, and I can't remember how much this made it on air, and, and we had to tape that episode twice. Right. Um, so we had talked about a lot of stuff. and um, There's a hidden episode somewhere out there on some digital format. If you can find missing, it and decode yeah. it, there's a ghost in that shell. If you can defrag it, yeah. But <laughs> Product we had, placement. We had talked about, right, <laughs> we had talked about, um, you know, the fact that libraries block access you know, that there's been, you talked about, you know, a lot of things that had been as good as CRISPR, maybe even better, that kind of fell by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And that you can you can take that example and you can name that thing. You can say um, cancer research. You can say, um, you know... Um, weight loss. Weight loss, physical therapy, hair growth, anything. Yeah. That um, There's been things that were very effective that um, they fell out of favor and didn't get funded and no one moved forward with it. And, it, and whoever was keeping an eye on the ball kind of went in and sort of removed certain books from certain libraries yeah. or made it really difficult to get access. And we had talked about the fact that really any ber- any person with a library card should have access to all of this information because so much money from the federal government goes to preserving this information well, and funding it. Well, the other thing is that, you know, all of you uh, taxpayers out there, which are your listeners, I suspect, you know, your money goes to the government and then they decide to where they're going to dole it out to defense, social services, science. And then that money goes to fund universities and research very much, almost 100%, fairly directly. So your tax money is funding all this research, right? You're paying for it. Mm-hmm. But in the end, you as a, uh, a normal um, citizen of America do not have access to the stuff you funded. Right. And there are private companies that then publish this research, um, you know, journals, science, nature, things like that. And uh, you got to pay for it, so you get you get double dipped. You get paid. You have to pay twice. Yeah. Um, and then stuff that doesn't get published that you just wholesale do not have access to. Well, let's and not then even they talk produce, about that. Then they produce a drug which you have to pay a fortune for, as we've seen in the last couple of years in price gouging. And as we as we record this right now, there are there are um, uh, congressional committees reviewing the um, the repeal and replace, or at least the repeal of Obamacare right now, which is going to affect a ton of people that have insurance. But um, price gouging is a necessity that grew out of the of the way that the, the law was written in compromise right. so that they didn't put any kind of limitations on what insurance um, providers could could charge. They also didn't put any limits on what drug companies could charge. And I think it's funny, and this is, and this would be a theme for a different show, but I think I have to get this in, that, um, you know, you talk about socializing the, um, the research, and then you talk about, you know, um, taking all of the profit from it and putting that into private hands as a form of um, capitalism. And this is something we see way too often, and what's funny is that the people that are fighting to produce these laws that keep this kind of capitalism gap open are the people most affected by the fact that they have to pay for these things that were that the research was socialized for. Yeah, there's just so much nuttiness. And, and you know, it doesn't make sense when you follow the money. Mm-hmm. 
it all makes sense. That's sort of like the conservation of energy for economics, follow the money. Um, yep, we could go off into that area, certainly. Sometimes I wonder, so who's that fellow, Martin Scarelli or yeah, something? Yeah, Scarelli. Scarelli? I wonder if he's being such a bad boy on purpose. Yeah, he wants attention. To wake, to also perhaps wake people up to the injustices. I kind of wonder, is he like a actually a good guy? I don't think so. A bad guy. No. To actually say, look, everyone's price gouging. He's a douchebag. His um, he, he's the 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 son of Georgian immigrants, and his parents were like totally wanted that American dream, and he's just this kind of. You know, first generation spoiled brat. And I mean, I read his tweets. He's a dick. And um, he bought that Wu-Tang Clan album, the edition of one record that he paid $2 million for. And um, it's a shame that they actually put up for auction because they might have made $4 million if they had sold it directly to somebody else who wanted it. He bought it hoping that Taylor Swift would want to come listen to it. What? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> he said this. Uh, well, you, you have to say he's entertaining. Yeah, I, he's, he's just kind of like, he's sort of like a really lame, you know, but, odd odd number Bond movie villain type of thing, you know, where he's like, and good. even one of the Wu-Tang you Clan know, guys called him a fake-ass wannabe Bond villain. I, but I have to tell you, you know, without interesting villains, the heroes, you know, you got to have a villain. Yeah. Otherwise, the story's not interesting. But he's the Riddler, he's not the Joker. Well, that's an important point, right? That really settles it, right? <laughs> Especially here at Meltdown Comics, yeah. right? He's, he's like egghead, you know? He's not like the scarecrow. Let's put him on the scale of things. All right. Well, you know, I, I probably I'm just projecting because I'm kind of hopeful for people. And I come from a, I have very good parents and a good upbringing. And I generally hope the best out of people. Mm-hmm. And that probably is just my projection on Martin hoping. Yeah. But I mean, even so, but of course, you know, there's that broken clock right twice a day right. axiom, which is that even if he is out for himself, by virtue of the platform that he's using to bring more attention to himself, he brings more attention to important issues that may actually hurt his own bottom line. Right. Well, I think that's what's happening right now with yeah. our current uh, president. Right. I've oh never gosh, seen yeah. California so active. Yeah. And I'm I'm thankful because I was politically active for many years. I yep. would caucus, I'd campaign, I'd go to her door, I'd go to conventions, and I saw how few people there actually were at the levers of power. Yeah. And people were just sleeping because they only thought, oh, all I have to do is vote. I've done my civic duty. All I can. I'm a good citizen. Yeah. I voted. It's like no, no, you do a little more. Two things, yeah. Two things. There are people that are hitting the streets and and protesting, which is a great thing. And And hopefully it's more than just Facebook posts. Yeah, let's hope so. And I mean, I've, I've, hey, even I've attended a couple of rallies and I I hate large groups of people. But, um, you know, the other thing, and aside from donating money, which I think people are doing a lot more than they used to, is that they're now understanding that their votes don't count. Yeah, good. And that there's a big push to change the system, which will not happen, of course. Uh, a great book, you know, a little segue here um, called um, Rat Fucking, which was just written about... That's Tuesday. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a day that ends in Y in Washington. But um, it was written about the, um, the Republican push to focus on redistricting. And by redistricting, which they do every 10 years after the, um, after the census taking, they get to draw up the districts. And in states that have Republican um, state Congress, they get to decide where these districts go. So you have some districts that look like a pencil with a wad of gum on the bottom of them mm-hmm. that encompass the majority of minorities in the state. So they all get one district. And then all these other districts, um, they're, they're easy for the Republican Party to win. And... It was line. It was like laid out for everybody to read. Carl Rove took out like an article mm-hmm. in in mm-hmm. the um, Wall Street Journal saying, "Hey, we're going to do this," and the Democrats really just didn't do anything in response to it. And uh-huh. they figured, "Well, we're going to win at the top of the ticket," and they thought it would trickle down. So the possibility for the gridlock in in Washington to change is going away at least until the next census. So you're talking about next census is going to be 2020. They redistrict. So then, two, you know, 2021 is when there's a chance to level the playing field again. So we're looking at at least another, you know, three, four years of the exact same thing, no matter what. And even with an interim re- election next year, what's really going to happen if the districts don't change? And so in a way, there's this same thing happening in academia, that there's been a push in the last, you know, seven or eight years to shift 
the um, control of the pocketbooks of what money goes to what research of taking away um, money that goes to research that doesn't pretty much immediately benefit drug companies <clears throat> mm-hmm. and that type of stuff. Well, let's get back to the um, the academia thing. I'll yeah. Point out just a little bit because it's my strength. Well, before we go, but, though, let's, I'm going to take a really quick break. for. Our, we're probably going to do two commercial breaks in this episode. So um, hold tight. We're going to hear from one of our sponsors, and they're going to get lucky because this one's going to get a lot of downloads. And we'll be back in just a few seconds in, in less than a minute with Dr. DNA. And the sponsor makes tasty products. I recommend it. <laughs> And we're back, back with Dr. DNA, and um, we uh, had to kind of take a quick break there as he was following a thought, but I'm let you get right back into it and go. Oh, um, academia publishing. Yes. So, it, you know, there are still good papers published, but it's actually at a fairly constant rate. So, like, the number of good papers published, you know, let's say in the last 50 years is fairly constant. But what we're seeing now, I'm really more so, uh, 30 years, is publisher parish. And so there are a lot of crap papers being published, and there are complete nonsense papers being published. So what you have now... And that is a higher degree of getting reported, if it's absolute nonsense. It can be, yeah, absolutely. And if you know the right people. You know, sometimes you look back, you look to how things went, and it comes down to one person, or making a connection, or who's doing what. But, uh, so in the 90s, you would say about... Uh, maybe half the papers were excellent, okay? Mm-hmm. And now you're looking at about nine, um, maybe 10 or 20% of the papers are excellent. And it's because they're being swamped out, more like 10% are excellent. They're being just swamped out by just a mass of crap papers. Um, so it's not like the number of excellent papers is going down. It's the right. percentage because so many more papers are being published exactly. that are just junk. Exactly. So you got to wade through that to figure out what's good. So, I mean, the, the immediate thing that I think is going to leap into people's heads and they hear something like this is, you know, a buzzword we hear a lot about. You mentioned the, the current president and, you know, the buzzword of, you know, hashtag fake news. And when we're talking about science, it's a little bit different. Like there are people that are seriously, they're laying down a theory and they're trying to move forward with it. And they're trying to, ostensibly a lot of these people are trying to get funding. So sometimes they do latch on to a wacky idea because it will get funding. But it's, is, is it a case as it is um, being, I guess, posited by certain people on certain sides of the aisle that these papers are being intentionally produced just to stir up fake results to delegitimize, you know, the idea of science? Yeah, it's possible. And, um, you know, you got to look at the funding sources and they're not always revealed. So you don't always know. So that would be a good thing for people to want to know. Right. So, um, you know, in traditional academic papers, officially, you're supposed to reveal um, all of your funding sources Mm -hmm. if there's a conflict of interest. And I think for the big journals, that's still very true. But um, so basically, if you check the addresses of someone who's funding a paper and it's in, you know, Winston, Salem, you know, North Carolina, that it's going to be a paper that's very friendly to the tobacco industry and and lobby. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, And remember, um, the papers that get published generally are also the papers that only support what you want. So you could do an experiment and it doesn't turn out the way you want it. Then you go like, well, I'm not going to publish it. Right. Right. And, and the bottom line on that is really only one out of five papers are actually published. The other four didn't come up with what you wanted. Hmm. So you got to take that with a grain of salt as well. Um, and then, of course, replication. Yeah. I mean, you know, if one researcher does an experiment, well, can another researcher actually repeat that at least once? Mm-hmm. And and many cancer research papers have even failed in that area. Do they still publish the Journal of Irreproducible Results? Has yeah, that yeah. gone by the wayside? I, you know, I don't know. I used to love that. But, um, yeah. Was that a MIT thing? I think so. Yeah. But, uh, and they would make a, it was, they would bind a collection of fascinating kind of oddball things. And you know, some of them are good. Yeah. Here's a fascinating oddball for you. Um, I came across, oh, you know, sometimes you find stuff on the, on just the general web, you know, some blog post and you think, oh, that's kind of nutty and crappy. Then you look in and there's foundation for it. And I think it might've been Journal of Irreproducible Results. And um, there was a doctor and a research scientist, and he found out that you can get rid of hiccups by fingering people's butts. <laughs> so, uh, and I was like, no way. This is Kanye West nutty. has hiccups a lot. That's Does what he's he? saying. Oh, well. 
there'll be a video out someday. I'm sure, I'm sure. And uh, so I looked up the papers and they were valid. I'm like, well, you never know. Yeah. And you're, and, you know, and, and ladies and gentlemen, that's your tax dollars. There yeah. you go. And does it give a budget on these papers? How much, <laughs> you know, this, this uh, project costs? Yeah. Do they include that? Uh, no, no, they generally don't. That would be in the tax filing for the project, I would imagine. It's a little bit hard to get a hold of, but you could find it ostensibly. Yeah. And mind you, speaking of budget and, and background stuff, you know, we're living in a really special time with the internet as we have it. It's really a miracle in a way, and I hope it stays around. And don't forget, uh, everyone out there, you know, it can be shut down. And you just know, last week, the Republicans voted to allow ISPs to sell information about all of us. Oh, I crap. And you get what you bill for, right? Yeah. 50, so, 50 senators voted for it. All of them are Republicans. Right. And it is every Republican senator. Right. So time to use Signal for your messaging apps, by the way. Which isn't secure either. Is it? Oh, God. Well, we're going to go back to paper and smoke signals then. Yes. You know what? I'm, I'm going full atomic. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to use paper and pencil. Yeah. Um, now I'm depressed. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Signal isn't one hundred percent. Well, you know, untrackable either. But there are several but, others that are popping up. But in it's, that... it's also this too. You know, the powers that be are going to, you know, like in herd animals. You know, the predators are going to go for the weakest animal in the herd. Mm -hmm. So they're going to go for the unencrypted first, generally. Yeah. So, you know, if you're running, if you and your friend are running away from the bear, you don't have to be faster than the bear; just faster than your friend. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, that's a great way to build a society, huh? Yeah, Darwinian. Uh, where was I going? Uh, oh, yeah, the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, the great thing now is that for people who have medical conditions and, and are sick and failing, um, you can actually go on the internet to government sites. There are actually excellent government sites and find, you know, what sort of medical trials are occurring. Mm -hmm. And you can get yourself in if you have a problem. And uh, and get some actual cures. I know in the area of cancer and immunotherapy, they're making fantastic progress. We're probably going to see a paradigm shift fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be very treatable. And um, yeah, but as we're going off on signal and it can be shut down by, as you said, what was voted on by our dear Republicans. Um, yeah. We've certainly seen a lot of stuff that was available on White House pages go away, you know, the second the new administration came in, not the least of which was any Spanish language um, text on the White House yeah. website. So what did Ben, was it Benjamin Franklin said that people deserve to get the government they vote for good and hard? Who said that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I worry about that phrasing. But um, And of course, there's Snopes out there, as you, as you listeners probably all know. Yeah. Snopes. Yeah. To check out, you know, who actually said what and whatnot. Right, but, right. But no one believes anything anymore if it doesn't conform to what they want to believe. Right. You know, and then the people are very have, dismissive. And, we, you know, I mentioned, you know, the idea of fake news and it, it being a label that is being attributed to a lot of things that aren't fake. They're just not what you want to hear. And, and you know, one person here does fake news, another person here does fake news or something. And you think, oh, it's not going to really matter. You know, like no snowflake in an avalanche cries guilty. And then after a while, just the inherent trust of a culture goes away. This is intentional. This is very intentional by the people who started this conversation. And it's, right. you know, that the, the president and in the, in the campaign and especially after election has been using the same buzzword. He drops it as often as possible. And I see people use it all the time. Another thing I started to see a lot, and it's funny, used a, an actual really great use of the word snowflake in an inoffensive way. And now snowflake has become this great, you know, insult. Like hmm. you can dismiss somebody who says something because someone says, oh, snowflake, like, oh, you think you're special. Oh, first world problems. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. This type of stuff. And, and, you know, the social justice warrior and all kind of, whether it's mansplaining or whatever. I mean, it's like some, some of these things are intentioned to be attacks on people who are doing something wrong, but then that grows and it becomes a generality that gets put out there as a defense. Like mm -hmm. if you don't have something intelligent to say, you just whip out a buzzword and drop the microphone on the floor. Mm -hmm. And I think that people really need to understand that regardless of your position, you need to explain it. Even if it's on, you know, a Facebook wall, you know, that the the appreciation of 
respectful discourse has been eroded as social media has become a more common form of communication with people that just don't have respect for these types of things. Mm -hmm. And so how long or is it already happening? Do we already see this in academia? I mean, you were talking about the quality of papers. Has the language in the scientific method papers gotten to almost street level um, <laughs> dismissive, not really, you know, using a lot of, of large words as a type of word soup against the um, measure of the research that is being done. No, no. But what I can say about the language of the papers in particular, mm -hmm. at some point I was um, researching um, the history of cancer research, went back 100 years, mm -hmm. and I went through the titles of about 10,000 papers, yes, with my own eyes. My eyes were bleeding. It was painful. And on um, many of those, about 2,000 of them, I read the abstracts, right? And it's funny that the abstracts don't always match the titles. Right. And what's even more diabolical is sometimes you'll go into a paper and the data and the figures in the paper don't even match the abstract or the title. It says something completely different. The title can say, you know, A cures cancer, and then in the paper itself, it shows that it does not. You see a lot of this in pop science, a right. lot of this. When people share something where they've they've only read the headline of an article, and then they paste it like it's evidence, and they actually right. haven't read it. If they, they did a quick search while arguing with somebody knee -jerk else. Knee-jerk posting. And they yeah. knee-jerk post, and then they, they realize that that title was clickbait, and that nothing in that article actually supports yeah. that, or it says the opposite. But I imagine that in the abstracts on these, that it's it's more likely to have developed out of having one or one or two people go through and write abstracts for papers to post into specific library um, data systems. And it's not unlike doing coverage for a script, where you're just getting one person's point of view, and maybe maybe their eyes were bleeding when they wrote it. You know, I just don't know how it happens because I've written many papers myself. Mm -hmm. You do the research. You get the conclusions, you make the figures to explain it as cleanly as possible, and you summarize it in the abstract. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you wrote that paper, you're generally not going to get it wrong unless you're doing it on purpose, or maybe someone else is writing the abstract, which is just, you know, nefarious. Yeah. But I think that happens. And I think that oftentimes, especially in filing papers that are old, that maybe the, um, the abstract of the paper gets filed in a different place and people, you know, someone, you know, your, your peanut butter is my chocolate. You know, this two people collide in a research lab and papers fall on the floor. And, you know, remember the cartoon where it's like the science <laughs> and brain and the CRISPR. dog brain. That's how yeah. CRISPR was invested. <laughs> yes. invented. So they, they get swapped and no one pays attention or, um, or they're, they're hiring lab assistants that don't really have a lot of scientific experience. Well, yeah. They're just hired to type stuff out. Well, and that's unfortunate. <clears throat> yeah. I went to a good school. Um, I don't know how some bad schools, but you know what? Here, I'm going to go medical again because this is kind of a medical mm -hmm. episode. <clears throat> I recently had the, um, the experience of spending a lot of time in a nursing facility mm -hmm. and seeing how they do things. And this will actually be very important for all of you listeners out there who have um, parents that are being taken care of in the ICU. Aging loved ones of any, any stripe. Right. And... Um, so when you go to a doctor's office, right, and they're taking your blood pressure, they usually have you sit upright, right? And they take your blood pressure, and they always have you sit upright because it's standardized, because it's the same position every time, and they know how your blood pressure is changing, and that's the way it's always been done ever since blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And in the nursing facility, I was looking at this person, and the blood pressure was really low. And I went to the nurses, and I said, blood pressure is low. You need to check them. And they did. And it was really low. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. So they laid him down flat and they checked it again. And laying a person down flat can change your blood pressure 40 points. That's dramatic. And it's, and it's not the standard method at all. Right. And I was flabbergasted that any nurse would do that. And I actually said, what are you doing? Where did you get your degree? Right? Mm -hmm. You know, she was taken aback and not happy about that. And then they, I said, you know, his oxygen is low. You should check it. That's pulse ox, or oxygen. And they checked it, and it was really low. And then they laid him down and had him hyperventilate, and then checked it. And they go, oh, no, it's high. Look, it's good. I mean, that's like taking your weight by putting one foot on the, right. on the scale and holding on to um, a wire above your head. Right. It's completely fake. Oh, right? I lost 20 pounds. That's insane. And, so, and, and probably it, common. Well, here's where it becomes common. So I thought this was insane, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> 
And I talked to um, several of my doctor colleagues, and they said, yeah, we've noticed the nurses that are coming out of school are being trained to do that. And it's kind of like they're corrupting the fundamental measurement that's used in a lot of health issues and for comparison and just how healthy are you. Insane. It's just... So they're trying to... I know it's flabbergasting because I obviously am flabbergasting with my mouth right now. Yes. So this is... Well, this is as sinister as, and I mean, I'm, 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 I've been saying a lot of, a lot of things that people are going to take as critical to the current administration. I'm going to throw you guys a bone. During the Clinton years, um, the standard of American success was measured by the cost of a steak dinner before the Clinton years. Right, right, right. The cost of a steak dinner. The cost of owning a home, the cost of buying a car. The consumer price index standard. Consumer price index standard. And they changed it to a meal, not a steak dinner. So that could be a hamburger. Right. And a hamburger could be a hamburger from McDonald's. And it became, instead of ownership of a house, it started to include ownership of a dwelling. So if you owned a one-bedroom condo or studio apartment, that now counts. It started to count where it didn't before. And I understand that most people don't live in houses, and that might have been a more necessary comparison or, or, or a piece of data, I should say. Mm-hmm. But when you then compare that against previous data... It's not comparable. It's not comparable. The standard is gone. Yes. A kilogram is no longer a kilogram. Right. And they, you know, they started to include... Um, the cost of motorcycles and any any vehicle that could give you transportation, a moped, any of these things were kind of sandwiched in to make their numbers look good. Mm-hmm. So that when they went before the board or when they when they announced statistics, and of course the um, the statistics can be massaged any way you want them to if you set up which collection of which statistics and what questions you ask. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like by teaching these nurses to do these non-standard practices in order to get better numbers right. that it gives a sense that people in America are healthier than they were before, yes, which affects the cost of insurance. Right. And so if you've got insurance companies and drug manufacturers saying, what? No, we, they're, on, they're on all our drugs and everybody's doing really well now. We've, we've actually combated you know, high blood pressure because look at right. this. Right. That's exactly. sinister stuff. And yet that seems like no one's really paying attention I to know. it. I know. Well, personally, I don't know why this, the nurses are coming out this way. I have not investigated. So, But, you know. But the implication why, why is certainly be... that insurance companies right, are, are building medical <laughs> facilities at specific colleges. That if you, go to, if you go to a college in Indiana, that you're going to have a lot of big farm money in the schools because their industry is there. They get to write off that donation and they also get to set an agenda. Just as in the art world, um, you know, Edith and Eli Broad buying, you know, large expensive sculptures from Jeff Koons and putting them in museums that they build rooms for are getting a reward for their donation. They're getting someone that stores the work for them, you know, at, and they do not absorb the cost. And in the case of the Broads, they get to build the building. So there is an implication, certainly, that if nurses are being trained this way, that they're being trained because it benefits, it, or it has a benefactor, we'll say. And that benefactor may very well be insurance companies right. and um, drug producers. It makes theoretical sense. Yes. yes. Yeah. And follow the money. So. Yeah. So we're going to take another quick break and we're going to um, really dig into um, the the true sequel to the last um, episode, which is um, addressing genetic superpowers and and how with all this data that we've talked about thus far, where this leads us um, in the immediate future. So uh, one more word from a sponsor and back at you in 60 seconds with Dr. DNA. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentials. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. We are, of course, speaking with um, my favorite guest, Dr. Whoa, DNA. Thank you. High and, praise. <laughs> absolutely. And um, we had talked about kind of the behind the scenes um, data that goes into what's backing medical research and what perhaps pushes the needle and <laughs> literally and figuratively. And what, what that brings us to in this, um, in this last portion of this, this continued episode is how genetics can be adjusted, finessed, changed, swapped. Um, We address CRISPR at the beginning of the program. Um, There are other ways to do this as well. Into improving living, breathing human beings, not building something necessarily in a lab from from scratch, but correcting genetic um, 
um, mistakes, if we can say such a thing, or um, by improving specific aspects of genetics medically. And, you know, in the last program we talked about, you know, um, isolating certain um, DNA strands to replicate the ability to heal faster or to be able to run faster. And um, since we only kind of scratched the surface of it last time, let's hit, you know, the stream of consciousness of some of the other things that you know are being worked on and are really easy to work on. Well, let's go on to the, um, since we were briefly just talking about standards, in the Mm -hmm. area of genetic manipulation, if you want to see if your tool is working, um, a standard model is a rat and they look at hemophilia. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the ability to clot, and you can measure, you know, how much you bleed and how quickly you heal. So the rat model of hemophilia, I think it's factor nine, um, is standard. And in the 90s, um, there was a, a thing previous to CRISPR, as I was alluding to, <clears throat> using a small oligonucleotides, that um, they were able to inject into rats. You know, and a rat is a whole living animal. You're not looking at an embryonic stem cell. It's a whole creature. <clears throat> and... What they found was that they were able to take this rat, which normally bleeds a lot, and it didn't bleed anymore after this simple injection. And a few days later, didn't, you know, uncontrollably bleed. It clotted. <clears throat> and when they looked at the liver, they found that 40% of the cells in all the liver, which is what makes the factor in this case, were converted, which was really quite good. And you also want to look at... And this is in one day? Uh, yeah, the injection was in one day, and, and then they tested for bleeding a week later. Well, let's do a somewhat relative apples to watermelons comparison, and what is one day in a rat's life equal a human life? Uh, well, they live about two years, depending how well you treat them. In the wild, not as long, you know, if they have a cushy life, pretty much longer. So if you extrapolate, you could say that um, but, two years to, or but, two days to a rat is how many... But, but the thing is, this sort of treatment is fairly instantaneous. So if we were to do it into a person... Wow. Right. So if I were to inject you in the arm, it would go through your bloodstream. And, you know, some organs of the body tend to are better targets than others. And and the liver is a big filtration system. So when you do gene therapy testing, it generally goes to the liver very easily and modifies those cells. That's why it's a model. If you want other organs of the body uh, targeted, it requires a little more work using antibodies and things like that. And isn't it true that you can repair the liver by eating liver? I don't know, but I got to tell you, you know, as a person who likes good food, it's near impossible to find good liver. Well, yeah. I mean, impossible. And you can look at the frozen slices and they'll have the necrotic holes in them. It's just gross. Mm -hmm. Only once after searching through uh, probably about 40 to 50 stores did I find a small little boutique place, you know, where the cow was hand-raised on a special farm. We, talk, and, we talked and about this last the liver, year, yeah. And I tasted the liver, and it was good. And, yeah. I, and previous liver was just not good, the normal liver anyone would buy. <clears throat> and I was like, wow, it's good. And then I gave it to my dad, and my dad was like, yeah, this is good. This is what I used to have when I was a kid, mm-hmm. right? So the quality of liver really is horrible. And, and liver is a, um, a very nutritious organ otherwise, but, you know, the, the health of the cow is, is how you treat it, too. Yeah. So, yeah, good luck. So it's very um, responsive to gene therapy. Right. The liver is a great organ because it's a filtration system. Blood slows down there, and there are first cells there. There's cells that are really... Um, like to absorb stuff out of the blood and stick to things. Mm-hmm. So normal gene therapy really goes there very easily. And you're saying instantaneous, like that well, it's, well, relatively oh, speaking. Three minutes. That, I'll call that instantaneous. You know, three minutes is not a long time. It, it takes you longer to get high smoking a joint. So that, not that I know well, there that you, personally. There's a standard, right? Yeah, you there's know, a new consumer standard. Consumer price index, how quickly you get high. Yes. How's the quality over the years? So the, um, with with a three-minute turnaround on physiological effects from... Um, well, well, mind you, the gene therapy will go in that quickly. Mm-hmm. And then the proteins have to be made off of your transcript, your DNA transcript or RNA or whatnot. <clears throat> and you could probably have stuff coming out of the cell within half an hour, mm-hmm. you know, start producing things. Wow. I mean, that that's... If we, if we saw this, in, it's like Star Trek type stuff. I mean, if we saw this in, in a movie where someone received a treatment and it turned around fast, we kind of like shake our heads and we're like, well, this is us suspending our disbelief because the movie's almost over. Right. But in reality, it's, it's kind of like that now. And I imagine that there's also certain types of genetic catalysts that you can bind the other treatments to in order to even speed up the flow of effect. 
hard to say. Maybe not in that particular instance. You know, I, I think I think Ebola is a really great standard because all it does is make more of itself. It's not sophisticated. It doesn't mm-hmm. trick the immune system or anything like that. It goes in and just replicates fast, mm-hmm. um, you know, and viruses and things like that. The bigger you are and the more complicated you are as a, as a creature, as a thing, you know, it takes longer to make you. Um, so, yeah. Like, for example, the adenovirus and adeno-associated virus, they definitely stick to the liver. But, but mind you, if we want to make superheroes out of all of our listeners, which I think would be great, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we ought to be able to target all the other organs, like muscles. You know, you, you don't want to be, hey, I'm liver guy. Well, that might be a power. Like, I can drink. I can party in L.A. a long time, right? Yeah. If you're liver guy. But um, <laughs> you're somewhere in back a cipher on the New Mutants with that power. You know, it's like it's only really good when you face, you know, the the Revenge of the Nerds or something. You know, when you, you've got to take on the the other fraternity to outdrink them. Mm-hmm. Not something that a lot of. I mean, it'd be great. It'd be great, but it's not something you'd necessarily walk around bragging about or make a T-shirt for. But you know, speaking of liver guy, <clears throat> if you look at bodybuilders, mm-hmm. right, and, and some people naturally yeah, they have, get liver disease and kidney disease well, a lot, well, right? We're going there. Yeah. Some pe- some bodybuilders naturally just have um, the components to become a good bodybuilder, and, and these components are somewhat known. Like, and you know, are, is your bone structure sufficient to actually carry that muscle? Right. But, but the other parts on putting on muscle is you need a strong liver, you need a strong kidney, you need a strong heart because you're pumping all that blood, mm-hmm. and. Um, not everyone is born with that. We're like different models of cars. Some come out with really good tires. Some come out with strong engines and weak powertrains. Some don't have windshield wipers. Some have green headlights. You know, there's always kind of a weak link. But If it's be- fast, it doesn't get good gas mileage. Right. If it's safe, it's not heavy. Or it's not right. light. There's, yeah. there's always an energetic and material compromise, but there can also be systems that aren't good for that particular sport, like bodybuilding. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you look at long-distance runners, they don't look like bodybuilders. And right. If you look like sprinters, they have big, fat, muscular legs. And and one of the things that is really limiting on bodybuilders, which is not appreciated by the general audience, is like, how good is their liver? How good is their kidney? Because they're doing a lot of metabolic load doing mm-hmm. what they do. So honestly, a team like the Avengers, were it to be real would be more built around specific organ strengths or um, partial body strengths so that as a unit they could all function together were it that we were a communal species. Well, that would be interesting, right? Yeah. Like you actually had a team like the Avengers that actually really communicated well and didn't argue all the time? Yeah. Like in those movies? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be incredibly dull to watch. How about we sit down and have a cup of tea? We don't really have to fight. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's an exciting film. They'd be Mr. Rational. You know, my dinner with Andre, my dinner with Captain America. (laughs) Mr. Rational would, would end every single fight. But yeah, I mean, you'd have somebody who was genetically predisposed to be a great weightlifter who would who would have a lot of strength. You would have somebody who is genetically predisposed to be very fast. I mean, that's kind of what these archetypes are. But in superhero comics, they allow just like every bad dungeon master in, in Dungeons and Dragons does, they sometimes let people just like, they roll a bunch of dice and they let them pick those numbers and put them wherever they go. Right. You know, or they decide, I'm going to be a fighter and you roll an eight on strength and they let them be a fighter. I mean, that's just not the way it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, and that there's been this necessity out of boredom or lack of imagination to put more than one superpower because, hey, wouldn't it be better if so-and-so was fast and strong? You know, where they, that, that's just not necessarily genetically yeah. correct. Well, it would be interesting if, if there were comics that were based not upon fantasy, but fundamental principles. So yeah. let's say you start off and you They'll try and do that and then which they is like, abandon it. You know, this character happens to have really strong connective tissue. So what is that going to lead to? You know, um, <laughs> Plastic man? <laughs> it's like people who are very flexible in circuses actually have fairly um, stretchy and weak connective tissue and allows them oh, to wow. be flexible but there's a bad side effect of that it actually start they tend to die of um, uh, cardiovascular diseases because their arteries are too flexible and stretchy and they blow out they stroke right so um, and is that degenerative generally like it's well, faster time wear and tear yeah it'd be like if you were a car and your tires were made out of a really soft rubber it would just sort of oh, melt and bubble gum it wouldn't yeah. work um and, and pros and cons, you know, like uh, the classic is malaria or sickle cell anemia. 
you know, why is, why do we still have sickle cell anemia in the genetics? Well, it's useful against malaria mm-hmm. in Africa, you know, pros and cons. And it's, you know, you have to be, when I was a younger scientist, you know, I thought, you know, there were good genes and there were bad genes, but it all really depends. If you're a person who puts on lots of muscle and is really strong, muscle is really energetic. It requires a lot of calories to maintain. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a time of famine, you're not going to survive. Right. Versus that other guy who doesn't put on a lot of muscle but is metabolically efficient. Bruce Lee versus, say, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, Bruce Lee always wins in yes. every situation <laughs> in my fantasy life. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect body style. Right. For long, for long life and longevity, you know, without outside interference. He, he was great. Yeah. Smart guy. Real smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's interesting, you know, that that is a huge, um, it's a fallacy. You know, in comics, that while, while everybody's always trying to come up with a a fresh and novel and usually more exculpatory approach to superheroes. So, like, it wasn't until the late 80s where, like, the Flash probably needs to eat more. Right. You know, right, like, right, when, they, right. when they rebooted the Flash, it was like, oh, this guy would be eating constantly because he's burning off, you know, so many carbs. So it was a sort of, like single scientific explanation that made sense that people could be like, oh, yeah, of course, that's why. But then it's still all the other nonsense. Right. And because, you know, there is this, like I said, there's that people want, they want fast and they want slim, but they want strong, but they like bulky. Hold on, hold on. You know, there's... And someone needs to be able to fly and swim. So you're talking about the Flash, right? And he has to eat a lot. And I'm thinking of um, different ways he could get his energy. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was having this discussion with a, an actress in L.A. some time ago, and she's like, you know what? When you know less, you can imagine more. <laughs> I think it's the opposite. I think yeah. when you know more, you can imagine more, and your life is more rich. Like, for example, on The, the Flash. The unknown unknown. And the unknown right. known. Well, thank you, Rumsfeld, for actually clarifying yes, that for us. Yes. And it was true. A lot of people needed that. They did. There are some things you don't know that you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But, so like the Flash, for an example, most people would just say, oh, he needs to eat a lot. But, you know, you can get your energy through nuclear action. You could get your energy, if you're going in the comic book realm, through some dimensional portal or you're sunlight. using a mini black hole or yep. sunlight. Or, you know, when you know more, it really becomes more interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh yeah, I'm, I'm glad I know a little bit, at least. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. There's the understatement. But um, so let's talk about some more stuff, like in, in addressing the logical application to the layperson. Right. You know, um, what do you think oh. we're, we're looking at now and soon? Oh, what actually gets to the peasant class? Yeah. As Walmart put in their legal documents some years ago? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. All right. So, uh, I you know... I see civiliz- I see trust inherently in this civilization collapsing, and I really kind of am worried for America unless people actually physically rise up. Mm-hmm. I think China's doing a gangbuster. Um, they're really engineering things very smartly, and people who don't think so are probably deluded. Mm-hmm. So I think in two or three years, you're going to see even greater benefits out of China for them. Um, I think China might actually continue to be like the the light for civilization for a while. They're pumping a lot of money into Africa. You're doing good investments. Yeah. They really are. And, you know, and their um, infrastructure and putting high-speed rail, that's important for moving materials from one place to the other. Yeah. I mean, if, if any of you have ever played uh, games like Civilization and things like that, you know how important it is to roll, put down roads so you improve, improve your production and gold. Yeah. There's this some more of the Greyhawk right there. <laughs> now, the, it's in all, you mentioned, you know, the rail and the fact that China has not just a bunch of really great and zero emission high speed rail, they have high speed industrial rail that people don't even travel on. Right. And, and, and also, you know, everyone knows they have big pollution problems yeah. and they are actively working on it. They actually last year, I think, uh, shut down the um, continued production of. 130 or so, or maybe 170 coal firing, coal producing plants. They actually just shut them down. Made a lot of you know investors angry there, mm-hmm. but they're actually working to clean their air and water, 
and they're really promoting nuclear and things like that. So they know they have an air problem. They know they, they, they certainly had a penchant since most of the battery factories in the world are in China for having battery factory accidents where they just shut down the factory and move. Right. And it's poison the land and they're now yeah. like incredible, you know, um, super fun sites in China um, all over the place. But that do you think that it was a weird misstep for them to um, remove the restriction on birth rate? And wouldn't a country like you India benefit by enforcing something I like that? I don't know, because I don't know enough about that. Mm-hmm. And at least I, I know that I don't know in this regard. But you know, my betting odds based upon what I've seen and what I know. So for example, <clears throat> I spent many years as an undergrad. I spent entirely too many years as an undergrad and in various sciences and engineerings. And... um so I've seen firsthand the quality of the students that come over from China for an American education. I don't know all that H-1B stuff works, but anyway, you know, easily more than 50% of the science and engineering classes were Asian mm-hmm. and very smart and very studious. Um, so, yeah. Well, then you also have to look, you know, in my supposition, at a country like Japan, whose collapsing economy can be directly tied to a negative birth rate. Right. That um, Japan is at a very interesting cultural crossroad right now and that they've had a massive disaster that affects the entire population of the country. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in talking about the, the nuclear um, factory uh, yeah, explosion. Gotta, by the way, I got to talk about the fish in the ocean. I have a friend who's a fisher. Mm-hmm. So anyway, and we'll get to there. Really not cool stuff happening in the ocean all over the place. Well, well okay, I'll get to it. But um, but with specifically with Japan, that because they have a negative birth rate, that means they're going to have to rely more and more and more upon foreign workers to come in and do work. But since they're such an what insular kind country, of work, everything, basic stuff, and then that means technology stuff. No, because you mean the not kids, specifically helping them on birth rate. Um, well, I mean, the, their their population will rise because other people will come in and live there. Wow. Okay. So you have to, which is the same in the United States. A lot of states also don't have a birth rate that connects to the amount of necessary work. And while there's a lot of people that seem very xenophobic about um, people coming in from other countries in certain areas, that they need people to actually fulfill certain job uh, markets and that the problem is that the people who are there aren't experienced in the job market that exists, which requires other people come in and take over mm-hmm. those jobs. The cost of training is a major expense on corporations that um, could easily be and should be, and I think a lot of job programs speak to this, subsidized by the government in a way that is actually, they get that back in tax immediately with a paycheck. Mm-hmm. And But people hate that because they think it's socialism. And with Japan, they have to kind of come to grips of whether or not they want to remain being the Japan that they've always been mm-hmm. or allow a higher percentage population of foreign people right. as permanent residents who will then, of course, marry and yeah. live with other Japanese people, which will right. dilute the, the, um, purity. the purity of, of, right. of the Japanese bloodline. And it's a very xenophobic society. And right. I don't say this as a pejorative. I don't judge it. My wife is Japanese. You're not hating, just Dayton. I'm not hating, just Dayton. Right. And, um, you know, for a country that was such an imperialist force in that part of the world, it's interesting that um, China is, I guess, um, getting a little bit more bullish um, with, with other countries in their own region while reaching out with a helping hand pretty much every place else. Right. Yeah. So with all of these medical and scientific advancements coming out of China some out of Korea, a few out of Japan, a lot out of Germany, and who knows out of Russia, because that stuff isn't really being, I mean, some of it's being published. Well, I don't know if I mentioned it in the last podcast, but scientific advancements, um, it used to be, you know, the the viewpoint on Chinese science was very negative. It was like, oh, it's not good. It's very amateurish. But they are now world-class, at least in the biomedical field now. They're publishing fantastic, groundbreaking papers. Mm-hmm. And what's even, I probably mentioned this before, what's even more interesting is English used to be the lingua franca or the, the standard language that all science was published in. And China is actually publishing uh, science papers in their own language, not Not in bothering English to put it in English. And the no. same in Germany. Really? Huh. I don't know about Germany. I think okay. Germany still publishes in English. Okay. They're okay. still on board. But China is definitely, you know, kind of keeping some things on their own. Keeping, Yeah. So. Well, now hit us with the fish story. 
Oh, yeah. So, you know, radiation is still coming out and this big ball of molten radioactivity is Fukushima still burning through rock yeah. and going down. And they're worried about the freshwater wells underneath Japan. And if it hits that, it could be just horrible. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're certain, and who knows if they can fix this. It's horrendous. But there is radiation going out into the ocean. Yeah. And, uh, or radioactivity, I should say, or elements producing radiation. And so I have uh, an old friend who's a fisherman out in Alaska, and I said, hey, have you uh, seen any strange fish? And he goes, I have. I have. I've seen four strange fish this year. We just threw them back. And I go, have you ever seen anything like that in your 30 years of fishing? And he's like, no. So anyway, there's just that little data point. There's a Russian fisherman who has an Instagram account called Monster Fish where he's routinely pulling monster fish out of the water between Russia and Japan. Really? And of course the taking pictures the northernmost island of Japan has has been in, in contention since the Sino-Japanese War in, in the turn of the, mm-hmm. the the 18th to 19th centuries or 19th to 20th centuries. And um and he's there's no shortage of new pictures that he's got of stuff that he's pulling out of the water. It's kind of fascinating. Uh-huh. Some people, I think, are feeling like, well, is, is this real? Is this not real? The um the, the production value for this and the the um the risk versus reward factor right. doesn't seem to be something you worry about because it's just like and maybe some stuff aren't necessarily monster fish. It's just not something that a lot of people see every day. But there's some pretty crazy looking stuff coming out of that water. Awesome. What was the site again? I think it's called Monster Fish. He's... All right, cool. Look it up. Yeah. Hey, uh, you know, while we're on radiation and monster fish, mm-hmm. I wanted to bring in the whole superheroes thing. Mm-hmm. I would like to talk about how to make yourselves radiation resistant. Maybe yes. it'll become useful. This this is worth hanging around for, people. Let's go. Let's go with this. Are we going to commercial? No, we're going to go straight into it. All right. So, um, you know, I'm not too worried about life surviving after disasters like this because life can really adapt very mm-hmm. quickly. And in fact, um, us, maybe not so much. Maybe if we adapt ourselves. With us CRISPR people in general, human beings. Yeah, I think I'm one. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a little creature called uh, radiodurans. I forget his first name. But radiodurans means it's uh, durable durans against radiation. I used to know all this stuff and I really don't anymore. But the important thing I remember about it is it has so many different repair enzymes being produced, DNA repair enzymes being produced, Mm -hmm. that you can fragment its genome. You can fragment its entire genome into something like... Two hundred base pair fragments, I believe, which is very, very short. It's almost complete obliteration, and it can repair itself and come back to normal without a single mutation. Hmm. Right. So you can completely burn it and fry it, and it could come back since it has so many repair enzymes. So for all you listeners out there, you could look up radiodurans and, and see what the tools it uses, and you can add it to your own toolkit for your own somatic cells. So the somatic cells are the everyday working cells in your body. They're like your muscles, your brain, your liver, and things like that. And they are are terminally differentiated, which isn't bad. It just means that they cannot produce germline cells anymore. And germline cells are the cells in your body that allow you to reproduce. Those will then produce the sperm or the eggs. So when you're a young embryo in the womb, the differentiation occurs, and a portion of your cells are put away to producing the next generation. And the rest of your cells go on to produce the body, which hosts your eggs and your testes and things like that. So, yeah. So when you're doing, uh, when you are doing genetic manipulations on yourself, dear listeners, you know, you have to be careful on what you're targeting. If you target your somatic cells, which is your day-to-day living cells, there's that, and it won't affect your offspring. But if you target your germline cells, that will affect your offspring. So it's your choice. Interesting. Well, thanks again for joining us for this great discussion. I'm expanding off of the, the, the first program about uh, the genetics of, of superpowers and addressing, you know, the research element oh, to this. Oh, wait. I remember the full name. Dinococcus radiodurans. Dinococcus radiodurans. Right, right. Perfect. So that... Um, you know, I hope that everybody kind of this is this lends itself to quite a few listens because there's a lot to digest and there's a lot to unpack. But like we say, you know, with with more information, your imagination grows. 
And so I think when people kind of understand what the burden of research is um, versus the availability of information and factors in budget and just the ongoing, you know, simple life, I suppose, you know, um, life as a human being, that we can already start fixing ourselves that we don't need to rely upon um, a lot of random government intervention mutation. to do that, a random mutation oh, that, yeah. that we can kind of take care of ourselves. Well, yeah. And in fact, I mean, if we have more time, perhaps in the next episode, uh, I want to talk about how to make yourselves heat resistant. Heat resistant. Right. How long does that take? Uh, it'd be fairly quick, but are we doing another episode or what? We'll do it. We'll do a snippet. Oh. Perfect. So we're going to end this episode and look uh, for our heat resistance episode coming up very shortly with Dr. DNA. Uh, this has been Pop Sequentialism. I have been your host, Matt Kennedy. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.